You know, part of my testimony, which I'm sure has a large uh, part to do with yours as well, if we're talking about biblical testimonies, uh, is that one day I did not understand repentance, and then the next day I did understand repentance. When I was young, when I was like six, um, that's when I, you know, was a young kid, and in, in the South, guys, like, there's this thing called an altar call. You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever heard about that? Where, like, the country pastors will be like, walk down the aisle right now and put your trust, you know, they did that. And I remember being, like, six years old, and I was in this church service, and I just, like, I just stood up. And my dad, like, looked at me and was like, grab me, like, what are you doing? Where are you going? And I was like, I'm going I'm to go. Like, I'm going to go to the front. And he sat me down, and he's like, okay, well, let's talk a little bit. My dad was being helpful by making sure that I knew what I was doing. So we, we talked about it, you know, afterwards. And um, long story short, I had a meeting with my pastor, and this is when I professed faith as a young kid. Um, and I'll fast forward through a lot, but that was when I was six. Fast forward to when I was 14. 14 years old, a different church, and in my youth group, the senior pastor of my church was preaching to us, and he preached a sermon about repentance. And I'm not going to lie, at first I was like, I know what repentance is. I've done it. I did it when I was six. Like, I'm good. But as I was listening to my pastor explain biblically what repentance is and what it practically looks like, I realized that I hadn't repented of my sin, that I really hadn't done it. And God used my pastor that night to teach me, to show me what real repentance is. And, and I believe that's, that's the night that I got saved. That's the night that God saved me because it's when I understood repentance and faith. And so the point of me telling you that is that we have to understand what repentance is. A biblical testimony is one where you understand the gospel and you have a proper response to the gospel. And you can't have a proper response to the gospel without repentance. And so I want to make sure that everybody here tonight understands what repentance is. And you're not just assuming that you have done it, but you have truly repented of your sin. There's a lot at risk, there's so much at stake. If you're someone who maybe you haven't repented of your sin yet. Maybe you think you have, but maybe you actually haven't. So tonight as we're looking at judges and we're talking about repentance, my hope and my prayer is that you'll be thinking about yourself. You'll be reflecting on your own life. Whether or not your repentance is genuine. Whether or not you are truly living for Christ. Because if there's any chance at all that you don't get it, tonight needs to be the night that you do. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 10. We're covering a lot of ground tonight, a lot of scripture, but we're going to start in Judges chapter 10. The beginning of Judges 10 was the two minor judges, Tola and Jair, and there's not a whole lot said about them but we can gather that neither of them were really all that great. And then starting in verse 6, we have this little episode where Israel, it seems like they finally get it right. 
It seems like they're finally doing what God is calling them to do. It seems like they are finally listening. But we'll see. Did they listen? Did they finally get it? Look, you just need to be sure tonight that you understand what biblical repentance is. You need to be sure that your repentance is genuine, is real. Here's point number one. Realize repentance is more than saying you're sorry. Realize, recognize, recognize. We'll go with that. Recognize repentance is more than saying you're sorry. Here's what happens in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. No surprise here. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria. So there's more now. There's more. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. So they're just going all out. All of these false gods, not just Baal and Ashtaroth, but so many more now, so many other pagan false gods have found their way into the lives of the Israelites. In verse 7, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Now watch this. Verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. We've seen that before. Where they cry out to the Lord, but what about this? Saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Wow. That's it, right? They finally did it. I don't know. What's God's response? And the Lord said to the people of Israel, congratulations, you did it. No. He said, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So we have them saying, we've sinned. We've sinned, God. We've sinned against you. I don't know about you, but when I'm reading that, I would expect God's response to be a little bit differently based on the words that Israel said. But, is, but God's response was anything but pleasant. His response was, I'll save you no more. So look, it definitely seems like Israel is taking steps in the right direction, confessing their sin, 
putting away the foreign gods, serving God. And to be honest with you guys, there is debate about whether or not this was real. Commentary after commentary, people just aren't sure. They disagree. The last sentence that, they, that just, you know, it, it does suggest that it might have been real about putting away their false gods, putting away their foreign gods and serving God. But evidence in the coming chapters suggests that it, it wasn't genuine. We'll get to that. But here's the point. Your repentance must be genuine. It needs to be genuine. Repenting of your sin is more than just saying that you're sorry to God. It's more than that. And look, I get that this is a quick and an easy way to explain repentance to children. I understand that. But unfortunately, that explanation can cause so much harm. To grow up thinking, oh, all I have to do is say I'm sorry, and then I'm forgiven, and I'm a Christian because I said I'm sorry, then great. Well, what about actually turning away from sin? What about actually taking your ungodly habits and replacing them with godly habits? Just saying sorry is not all repentance is. God's word makes it clear. Joel chapter 2 is one of the, what I think is one of the clearest pictures of what God wants from us when we, when we repent. And here's what it says, Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me, with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So this is the prophet Joel, and he is pleading with Judah. He is pleading with them for genuine repentance. He wants them to repent because that was the only thing that would keep the destruction that God would send from coming. is real and genuine repentance. He's pleading with these people, you need to repent. You need to stop rending your garments to God. You need to rend your hearts. Return to God with all of your heart. Turn to Him with your heart. God desires for you to return to Him with your whole heart. And here's some things that may come along with that. Fasting, weeping, mourning. Well, why would we be weeping and mourning when we're repenting? Because you are disgusted by your sin. That's why you would be weeping and mourning and repenting and turning your heart back to God because you're weeping over how disgusting sin is and how much you hate sin and you recognize how much God hates sin. So you're coming to him recognizing how sinful you are and saying, God, I don't deserve you. I don't deserve anything that you give to me because of my sin, but I'm repenting and I'm giving you my heart. See, that's what God wants from you. There's so much more than just saying that you're sorry. Just admitting to God, yeah, God, you know, I messed up. I'm sorry. Thanks for forgiving me. The word rend, it means to split or to tear up. And so he says rend garments. 
There was this, this ancient custom that they would rip their clothes. You see it all over the Old Testament where they would just rip open their robe and they would put like sackcloth and ashes on, right? Well, what that's symbolizing is, is repentance and grief. They're, they're ripping and, and rending their garments here. But so here, here's, what, here's what God is saying now. I don't want the robes. I don't want the garments. I don't need some outside show. I don't need your play acting. I don't need that. He says, rend me your heart. Return to me. Come to me with your whole heart. Everything that you are. Your whole heart come back to me. It's really easy to just rip a garment as a sign of repentance but then to not mean what you're doing in your heart. And that's what was happening here. It was this custom, it was just this going through the motions type of thing that they would just rip off their rip the garments off. And, oh, I did that, so I've, I've repented, and now God forgives me. And God says, I, that's, that's not, it's not what I'm looking for. That's not genuine. Your heart's not in it. God wants your heart. God's not looking for any kind of outward performance. Because here's the thing, if, if it's just a performance, if what you're doing is just for show, God knows it. He sees through it. So for Israel here, even with Israel's putting away the idol, was that just rending garments to God? Was that just doing something outwardly when there was no inward change? Maybe. But I want you to think about your life and your heart and your repentance. Is it genuine? Has it been genuine? I want you to think about your relationship with your sin. Do you hate sin? Do you hate sin? Does it disgust you? Because God hates it. God is a gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And if you will repent and render your hearts to him, he will forgive you. When you were growing up, how many times did your parents give you the whole speech about like, I don't want you just to say you're sorry, but I want you to show me you're sorry. Anybody else get that speech from your, your parents? You know what I'm talking about? Where you're just like, I'm sorry. And they're like, it's not good enough just to tell me. Right? They see, that's kind of what God is saying. It's a little bit different, obviously. Like, don't just say it. Don't just pretend. Don't just let it be something on the outside. But it needs to be inward. So how is your heart? Have you genuinely repented of your sin. I'm going to ask you the question again, and I want you to answer honestly in your minds. Do you hate sin? When you sin, what is your response? Oh, no big deal. Sorry, God. Or do you understand that sin is, is high treason against a holy God? It's not until we understand how bad sin is, how much God hates sin, can we say that 
we've repented from it genuinely? Have you recognized how egregious your sin is before our perfect and holy God? So look, maybe, maybe some of you guys have truly repented of your sin, and we should praise God for that. Praise God for true and genuine repentance. But maybe some of you have not. And right now I'm talking, I'm talking to you. Maybe if you're just being really honest with yourself, and I hope that you are right now, maybe you would honestly say, the problem is you love your sin. And that's that. That you love your sin. And the thought of stopping whatever sinful habits you're involved in, you just don't really want to do that. Maybe you are fooling yourselves into thinking that you can follow God and continue to live in this habitual, sinful lifestyle. It doesn't work like that. You cannot have both. You need to hate your sin. You need to love God more than you love your sin. You need to stop putting on this show of I come to church, I go to small group, I answer these questions, I I check the boxes, but I know in my heart I haven't really repented because I love my sin. You need to repent of your sin. You need to rend your heart to God. And that's what you need to do tonight. Because we have a God who is loving and patient. He is full of steadfast love, waiting to forgive you when you repent and put your trust in him. So after this short episode of Israel and their maybe or maybe not repentance, whatever this is, we meet the next major judge. His name is Jephthah. Jephthah has a really interesting story. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I'll give you a summary. So we have the Gileadites. Gileadites are the people that are under attack. They're part of Israel. And the Gilead Gileadites are asking who is going to lead them and who is going to fight against the Ammonites. And so then we meet this character, Jephthah. He's the son of Gilead and a prostitute. Gilead, he had a wife, and he had legitimate sons from his wife. And Jephthah, being the son of a prostitute, was an illegitimate son. And so the legitimate sons ran him off. They told him to get out of here. We don't want you here. Run away. So he ran off. And then the Ammonites went to war against Israel. And so then, when there's this war raging and they realize they need someone to lead them, the elders of Gilead, they find Jephthah and they say, hey, can you please come back and lead us in war? And Jephthah's like, now? Now you want me to come back? Okay. He says, if you bring me home to fight them, and we win, I will be your leader. I'll I'll lead you from that point on. And so Jephthah comes back, and he sends messengers out to the king of the Ammonites, and he says, why do you want to fight? Like, why, why are we even doing this? What's going on? 
And the king says, because Israel took my land. Because you took my land. And Jephthah just says, no, we didn't. (laughs) That's not what happened. We did not take your land. And so then Israel, they begin their journey forward to fight the Ammonites because they just won't back down. They won't listen to reason. Jephthah tries to explain that's not even really what happened. You've got the facts wrong, but truthfully, this is our land because God gave it to us. It's not even yours to begin with, so you've got, there's no truth there. And the king just doesn't back down. He's relentless here. And so Jephthah says, okay, well, then we're just going to go fight. And so Jephthah, what he does here is he sends messengers to the king of Edom and the king of Moab, and he says, can I please travel through your land with my troops? And both of the kings, they say, no. So they go around these places. And then he gets to the king of the Amorites, and he says the same thing. Can can we please pass through your land? It'll save us time. And that king says no. But he gets mad that they asked in the first place, and so then they fight, and then Israel wins that fight. And then it says, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and they finished their journey to the Ammonites. So the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. They're there. They're at the the, the front gate of the Ammonites. They're about to fight. And Jephthah makes this interesting vow. He decides that he's going to be pious and holy, and he's going to make a vow to God to show his devotion to how, how, how devoted he is to Yahweh. And he says this, Lord, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Well, Israel won. They beat the Ammonites. Jephthah goes home, and guess what? It was his daughter who came out the front door to meet him with dancing and tambourines because her dad's a, a war hero he came back but remember he made a vow to burn as a burnt offering the first thing that came out of his house and it says that when he saw her he tore his clothes right there's that symbol of grief he tore his clothes and he cried because of the vow that he made and then Even more tragically, his daughter says, if you promised this to God, since you did promise this to Yahweh, then you need to do as you promised. And the Bible says that he allowed her to take two months and live and weep for her virginity. If she's going to die, that means that she's not going to get married and have kids. So two months was come and gone. She came home. And the Bible says, He did with her according to his vow. And then there's more drama. Ephraim gets mad at Jephthah for fighting the Ammonites without them, so they're threatening to burn his house down with him in it. And so then there's this this fight, and then they capture Ephraim's men, and they've got, like, there was a big fight. A lot of them went away. They capture all these men, and they're trying to figure out who really who are their enemies, who's not. Some guys are lying about it, saying I'm not with them. And so Jephthah comes up with this genius plan, and it's like, it's like a password. You know when you're a kid and you're like, what's the password? Can I come in? You have to guess the password. Jephthah, he, he comes up with a password. And he says, okay, 
If, if you are not an Ephraimite, then say the word Shibboleth. But everybody who was an Ephraimite couldn't say it because of their accents or whatever. And so every Ephraimite said Sibboleth instead of Shibboleth. And so as soon as they answered wrongly, they were put to death. And it says that Jephthah judged for six years, then he died. There's a lot here, obviously. But I'm going to go ahead and give you point number two. Prove your repentant heart by abiding in Christ. Prove your repentant heart by abiding in Christ. So once you've repented, once you have rendered your heart to God, the Bible is very clear that your life will start to look a certain way. That you're going to start doing things. You're going to start to live a very certain and specific way. And based on the continued downfall of Israel and the terrible decisions made by Jephthah, I think, personally, it's safe to say that Israel did not truly repent. I mean, think about this. If their repentance was genuine, do you think that God would have answered them as harshly as he did? It seems like if their repentance was real, then God would have accepted it, but that's not what happened. So let's look at the story. Jephthah, his actions, they show, they prove that he was heavily influenced by paganism. Remember all the false gods? All of these false gods that Israel was worshiping? It shows that he, personally, is heavily influenced by these pagan religions, and specifically we see this in the tragic vow that he made. Let's be clear about something. God is not pleased. He was not pleased with this vow. It did not honor God. He did not like it. It was not pleasing to him in any way. What Jephthah is doing is he's searching for assurance of victory. At one point when he's talking to the king, he says to the king, okay, well, the judge, the just judge, referring to God, he's, he's going to sort everything out, right? And, and you would think that by him saying that, he's got confidence here that they're going to win. But then he turns around and he wants assurance, so he makes this vow, thinking that God is going to be pleased with this, thinking that this is going to just make sure that they go and they win this battle. So he decides to take a play from the pagan's playbook to prove his Devotion to God, we already know this, but the pagans, the pagan uh, religious rituals, a lot of that had um, human sacrifice in it. They would sacrifice their children a lot of times. That was a normal thing for these pagan nations. And they would do this in order to show their extreme devotion to the false god, but they also did it because they were hoping to get something in return. So you can see how that influenced Jephthah and his decision. God, I'm going to devote whatever comes as a burnt offering. This is going to show you how devoted I am to you, but I also want something in return. Jephthah, almost certainly, we can be pretty certain here, that he expected a person to come walking out of the doors of his house. He just didn't really expect it to be his daughter. The sacrifice he refers to here, quite literally, he calls it a burnt offering. 
He intends on burning on an altar whatever or whoever walks out of the door. And so he's made a vow to God to give his daughter as a burnt offering. And here's another place where some people are going to argue, oh no, whenever a person walked out, he changed his mind and he decided that he was going to offer her to service before the Lord. And and that's why she had to go weep for her virginity because if she was going to be devoted to God's service and she was never going to get married. And so that's what happened. But it literally says burnt offering. Plus the reaction of Jephthah. He fell, tore his clothes. Probably wouldn't have had that intensive a reaction if all he intended was service to God. So look, the point here is this, it just keeps showing how far Israel has fallen. How far gone they are. How far away from God Israel is. Jephthah thought that he was doing something that would secure victory. He thought that God, that Yahweh, was this transactional God just like the pagans. He didn't know God the way that he should because Israel didn't know God the way that they should. And he maybe, maybe even thought that he was doing something pleasing before God, that God was actually pleased with this by making this vow. So in this supposed attempt to show his devotion to Yahweh, He keeps his word, and he does something that God clearly hates. Just read the law. Read it. If they were familiar with Levitical law, with God's law, he would have known, God doesn't want this. But in this false sense of piety and holiness, he's like, oh, I've got to keep my word. I've got to keep my word to Yahweh. And the whole time, the irony is God is not pleased with this. And it's showing us how far Israel has fallen away from God. And what's even more tragic about this is that his daughter was in the same line of thinking. That she looks at her father and says, you made the vow, you have to do. Like, that's, that is tragic. Do we see how tragic that is? How terrible that is? It's so backwards that she was willing to just submit herself to the vow so that her father can keep his words to Yahweh when this is murder. Not pleasing to God. Their convictions were to stay faithful to a vow that would never, in in a million, never in eternity, would actually be seen as pleasing in God's eyes. But they didn't realize that because they were too distracted by paganism, by false gods, by false religions. And look, if they had been familiar with the law, with God's law, then they probably would have remembered Leviticus 27, which is where God says that if someone is devoted to him for service, okay, this is not obviously talking about someone getting devoted as a burnt offering, okay, so it's a little bit different, but it clearly didn't recall this, because God says if someone is devoted to his service, but then for some reason it's found that you're unable to fulfill the vow, to make the vow right, they have to pay 20 shekels to the priest. So yeah, the situation is a bit different because he was actually going to burn his daughter. But if he had remembered or he had even known God's law in the first place, then this certainly would have come to mind. Certainly there would have been something that he would have said, oh, I remember this. Like, 
I'm unable to do this. It's my daughter. So here's 20 shekels. Like, but he didn't know that because he wasn't familiar with God's law. If Israel had truly repented, then things would have started to improve for them. That doesn't mean that their lives would have been perfect, but I mean, think back to the end of chapter 10. If that was real, if that was genuine, things would have started to change. They would have been seeking out God, seeking out His Word and His law, conforming themselves to what He says over what pagan religions say. But it just continued to be a downhill stumble. If they had truly repented, then they would have done things that were honoring to him. But that is not what happened. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. It says this. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Real repentance leads to bearing fruit. Being obedient to God. Submitting yourself to him in his word, in his desires. That's what repentance leads to, and real repentance really just leads to more continued repentance. See, and Jesus talks about this in John 15. I want you guys to flip there. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip John 15, starting in verse 1. I want you to listen to what Jesus says about abiding in him. Jesus is very clear about what the life of a Christian is going to look like. The life of someone who has repented of their sin, put their trust in him, this is what it's going to look like. John 15, starting in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into fire and burned." If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Genuine repentance is seen, is proven, 
in a life that is abiding in Christ. Genuine repentance is proven by a life that bears the fruit of the Spirit. A life that continues to mourn and repent over sin. As the words of Jesus really could not be more clear in John 15. You will abide in Him if you are His disciple. If you have put your trust in Him, you will continue to abide in Him. You will keep His commandments. You will abide in His love. So tonight, you need to be honest with yourself, maybe for the first time in a really long time. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you bearing fruit? Keeping in repentance? Are you keeping Christ's commands? Prove your repentant heart by abiding in Christ. Don't make the mistake that Israel continues to make over and over and over. Crying out to God, putting on a show, but never meaning it with their hearts. Turn to God with your heart. Now in the remaining verses... What happens is Jephthah, he engages in this crazy battle. He leads Israel to victory. Um, he, he catches the, the hiding enemies with the, the secret password game, right? And then, then he dies. And then we have some other minor judges that are recounted after that. We'd have a very little bit of detail about these minor judges once again. But the thing about this whole text is that God's silence is deafening. He's silent. And so here's what some people will kind of argue and say, well, he didn't intervene, so he must have been pleased with these actions, which means that you don't have a good God. That's not what that means. You see, the narrator himself denounces the actions by saying simply, he did to her as he vowed. That's all he says about it. And he went and he did it. He doesn't give detail by any means at all. He just says, and he did it. And not only that, but the narrator is showing us that it is not pleasing to God because of the placement in the book of Judges. You've probably noticed this, but it keeps getting worse. In fact, the title of the sermon is, Can It Get Worse? It can, and it will. So the narrator is showing us that this is not pleasing to God, this is not good. And God is silent. And truthfully, like we, we, we're not God. God is all wise. His ways are higher than our ways. So like we, we don't know. We don't know why he didn't stop it. We don't know why it had to get to this point. But we do know that this is his discipline on Israel. After Israel's seemingly false repentance, 
God has just left the nation to its own devices, its own resources. In fact, that's what he said he was going to do at the end of chapter 10. Sometimes God's discipline is just found in him letting you face the consequences of your actions. Here's point number three. Recognize God's silence might be his discipline. Certainly here his silence is discipline on Israel. Maybe you have been facing some really difficult times in relationships, in school, in work, finances, personal trials. Maybe right now it seems to you like God is just silent. It could be that it's his loving hand of discipline leading you to repent. God allows us to face the consequences of our own sinful decisions. I think we've all been there. We can all agree, yeah, that happens. So I want you to think about your life once again. And maybe that's, that that's you. It's difficult. You're facing trials repeatedly, and, and you just feel like God is silent. Is he disciplining you because of your sin, because of any unrepentant sin? So look, that, that's what I want you to think about tonight. We're going to go to small groups in a few minutes, and we're going to talk a lot about repentance. And I want you to think about, have you genuinely repented of your sin? If you have questions about repentance, if you're not sure what it even is, if you're not sure what it looks like, if, if you are not really positive, if you've done it, talk about this in your small groups. Ask your leaders these questions. Come find me after. I'll talk to you about it. Just, just talk about it. You need to figure this out tonight. Whether or not your repentance is genuine. So again, don't make the mistake that Israel continues to make. You need to repent of your sin genuinely. You need to put your trust in Christ tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God that is patient and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. Thank you that you give us opportunity after opportunity to repent of our sin. Thank you that you sent your son to die in our place, to take our sin and, and bear them on his own shoulders. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. Thank you that you've made a way for us to be in relationship with you. God, I pray that we would make it a habit to just reflect on our lives. God, are our lives pleasing to you? Is there sin that we're not repenting of? Do we need to genuinely really repent for the first time? If that's the case, then show us. Help us to all see it tonight. 
God, let us all lead lives that are pleasing to you, that are glorifying to you. God, as we sing this last song, I pray that we would sing it with thankfulness in our hearts towards you for what you've done. As we go to small groups tonight, help us to take the time seriously, help the conversation to be helpful and beneficial. God, we love you and we're so grateful for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.